Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. President-elect Joe Biden's clean energy plan aims to make America's electricity system carbon neutral by the year 2035. To reach its goal, the plan will seek to develop the nation's clean energy infrastructure and expand the role of wind and solar power. Yet renewable energy presents certain challenges, one of which is to ensure that electricity is available even when wind and sunshine are scarce. In recent years, grid-scale energy storage has emerged as one option to address the variability of wind and solar output. In fact, over the last two years, demand for energy storage has accelerated, particularly in the Southwest, where batteries are increasingly used to balance daily ebbs in solar generation. Yet as renewables become a larger part of America's energy mix, the challenge of balancing intermittency will grow dramatically. Eventually, storage could be called upon not only to even out daily fluctuations in energy output, but seasonal variation as well. On today's podcast, we'll explore the potential for grid electricity storage in its many forms to meet the seasonal balancing demands of a low-carbon electric grid. We'll also look at costs and at alternatives to storage. My guest is Oscar Serpel, research associate here at the Climate Center, whose recent work has examined the potential for seasonal energy storage. Oscar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's great to have you on here finally after so many years working together. Yeah. Hey, so let's go ahead and jump into this. Uh, so we hear a lot these days about electricity storage. Can you give us a quick overview of why storage has drawn so much attention and come to the fore? Sure. Uh, so I would say that storage is really providing uh, two related but distinct services, um, both of which are really contributing to its importance in the energy transition. The first is that storage is allowing for the distributed or wireless use of electricity in a way that was really not possible until fairly recently. Um, this allows us to you know, carry around smartphones, these pocketable computing devices that would have, you know, just a couple of decades ago, really passed for supercomputers. And storage now allows us to carry those devices around all day on a single charge. Um, and in the same vein, storage has allowed for uh, a revolution in transportation. Um, automobiles in the US account for about a third of all carbon emissions. And the only reason that we've been able to create competitive electric vehicle alternatives is because of recent progress in, um, in storage technologies. I mean, without advanced lithium ion cells, you'd have EVs that could really only travel a fraction of the distance on a charge. The second service that storage uh, offers us is really like, uh, is load balancing. Um, being able to move electricity basically through time um, from the moment it's generated to a moment when it's really most needed. Uh, for all of their environmental benefits, renewable energy sources such as wind and solar, they do have their drawbacks. Uh, specifically, they will always, to some extent, put us at the mercy of Mother Nature, no matter how efficient or cost competitive they become. At a given location, you know, the sun does not always shine and the wind does not always blow. And this means that renewable energy is in some ways kind of inherently less flexible than fossil fuels. Um, but of course, that doesn't make our transition towards renewables any less important or necessary. So because of this 
inherent intermittency of renewables, um, the larger a share that wind and solar make up in our energy mix, the more variable our supply of electricity is going to become. Uh, California is a, a great example of this, where the introduction of lots and lots of solar to the regional grid has created a phenomenon uh, known by many as, as the duck curve, um, in which the capacity factor of solar, um, which is basically just the percentage of a solar panel's uh, nameplate capacity that's actually being generated at any given moment, that changes over the course of a day as the sun rises and sets. Um, and it reaches a peak sometime around midday, early afternoon. Uh, meanwhile, demand for electricity often peaks in the late afternoon between, you know, sort of 4 and 6 p.m. Uh, this is when everyone's getting home from work, um, or at least under non-COVID circumstances, that's when everyone would be getting home from work, uh, starting to do chores around the house. And unfortunately, this coincides uh, with solar radiation levels beginning to dip as the sun sets. So this pattern causes an energy surplus at midday and possibly even uh, an energy deficit in the late afternoon, early evening. This daily oscillation, uh, when you graph it, it can you know, sometimes look like a duck, hence the name. Um, energy storage, the importance of it is that energy storage is really the most direct method of smoothing these kinds of daily curves. Um, if you can store some of the surplus energy in the middle of the day, and provide it in a few hours later in the early evening, you can shave off the peaks and fill in the troughs of this duck curve. Um, and as the share of renewables increases, the importance of storage and other load balancing techniques is going to increase. So you just mentioned that there are other technologies out there for, for balancing the intermittency of wind and solar. What are some of those, those other technologies? That's right. So batteries, you know, specifically when we're talking about lithium ion batteries, um, they're really a, a fairly new concept when it comes to grid level storage and load balancing. Uh, the technology is in many ways um, kind of more well suited for applications such as laptops or, or EVs. In fact, I think it's about 95% of existing grid storage in the US today uh, uses a much older technology and that is uh, pumped hydroelectric storage or pumped hydro. Uh, this is the process of using surplus electricity when it's available uh, to pump water uphill to a storage reservoir. Uh, after that, the system can operate just like really any other hydroelectric power where the stored water is released and the force of gravity turns a turbine uh, used to generate electricity when it's needed. Of course, these systems don't rely on cutting edge technology. They've been around for, for many years and, uh, and they've really been the only viable solution for grid storage until very recently. And these gravity powered systems, they do have a few other advantages. For one, uh, they last a very long time. The, uh, you know, a, a regularly used and, and well-maintained lithium ion battery, it might last you for seven or eight years before uh, its storage capacity degrades considerably. By contrast, a pumped hydro system um, could last 30, 40, maybe even 50 years or more uh, and still maintain most of its original capacity. Uh, for, for example, 
there's a facility down in Virginia called Bath County, uh, the Bath County Pumped Hydro Station, um, that's been operating continuously since 1985. And as of today, it's still considered or uh, kind of claims the title of the world's largest battery, which, you know, depending on your definition of a battery, it really is in respect to, the, it, to its energy storage capacity. Uh, it's got about uh, 3,000 megawatts of power and 24,000 megawatt hours of, of energy capacity. So that's kind of the main alternative on, for grid storage at the moment. Um, but that said, it, you know, pumped hydro also has its limitations in that it's much more land and water intensive than lithium ion batteries. Uh, and it can only be sited in areas with appropriate topography and elevation, um, which makes it much more limited in application. So, so you just talked about some of the limitations specifically related to pumped hydro, but in general, what is storage particularly good at and, and what are its general limitations? Uh, storage is really good at helping variable renewable energy sources like wind and solar help to mimic fossil fuels in many ways. Fossil fuels are marvelously flexible energy sources. Obviously, they have other issues, but just in terms of the flexibility they offer, they're, they really are hard to beat. Uh, they can be produced, refined, and stored uh, more or less indefinitely without loss or degradation. Um, they're extremely energy dense, uh, and they can be transported anywhere uh, when and where they're needed. Storage technologies can help a sustainable energy system uh, retain some of these advantages that we currently enjoy from our largely fossil fuel-based energy system. Uh, unfortunately, you know, storage, especially existing battery storage technology, it's far from a perfect solution to this need for flexibility. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries have several limitations. Uh, they can certainly be improved through future research and development, but they'll likely continue to be a barrier uh, for their application in some storage needs. Uh, one limitation being their lifespan, which I've already briefly mentioned. Um, lithium ion batteries are only really designed for a few thousand charge cycles. And for our phones or even in an electric vehicle, that's really plenty. But when you're thinking about uh, balancing an entire electricity grid for decades to come, uh, those short lifespans will increase the cost of upkeep considerably. Uh, batteries are also, they're not terribly well, equi uh, they're not terribly well equipped for uh, longer duration storage. Batteries experience something uh, called self-discharge. And this basically means that if a battery is left full, uh, and we're talking specifically about lithium ion batteries right now, um, after a few weeks or months, it's going to have lost a sizable chunk of that energy storage capacity. Um, how large that chunk is really depends on, you know, the length of time it's been left and the specific technology being used. But in some cases, and at sufficiently large scales, that self-discharge could represent a significant loss of stored energy. And batteries also 
really don't like being left empty for any significant length of time. This causes them to degrade more quickly. So as we get more renewable energy, the intermittency of wind and solar energy will need to be balanced over longer and longer periods and, and eventually actually over seasons rather than just days. Why is this? Yeah, so this gets back to uh, kind of what I was just saying. When we think of energy storage systems, uh, it's really important that we observe the distinction between power and energy. Uh, a battery's energy capacity is the total amount of energy um, put out as electricity that a system can store. The power of a battery is the rate at which it can charge and discharge that energy. Um, today, because batteries are primarily being used or relied upon to meet short kind of, you know, one to four hour dips in electricity supply, the power output of a storage system is somewhat more valued currently. Uh, we want to know that when that duct curve starts to curve upwards, there's sufficient power from storage available to meet increased demand. Mm -hmm. But we also really require it to provide that power for only a relatively short period of time. And that's why most battery systems are rated for with about a four hour duration. However, as deployment of intermittent renewables like wind and solar increase, the duration for which we'll need that storage is also going to increase. And this is kind of challenging to describe without visuals, but if you imagine the duck curve, uh, and any listeners who want a visual could Google, can just Google the duck curve. Um, if you imagine the duck curve and you imagine stretching it out um, so that instead of a single oscillation each day, we're really looking at uh, a single macro oscillation over the course of a whole year. Here's another way of, of thinking about it. You know, solar panels, are going to generate more electricity in the summer months. Um, there's less cloud cover, sun is more intense. Um, but solar irradiance is still going to vary over the course of a single day in the summer. Um, but the total energy generated per day in the summer is going to be higher than it would be in the winter. So if you were to take the daily total generation from solar, and graph each day for, a, for an entire year, you will see a curve not totally unlike the curve you would see over a single day, uh, where it rises in, during the summer and, and drops it in winter. Only now it's over a much longer time horizon. Um, and over that longer time horizon, you will need long duration storage to help balance these daily generation totals. So in your recent report, you point out that the drive to electrify everything will create new electricity demand patterns that will make it even more critical that electricity be delivered reliably at all times. How will the shift to electric home heating, for as an example, further complicate the shift to a clean grid? Up to a point, we've, we've really only been discussing the load variability caused by the intermittency of renewable energy. And by the way, I've been focusing mostly on solar because of the dot curve example, but we do see fairly, you know, a, a fairly significant variation in wind capacity as well over different months of the year. And in many ways, wind is even 
sometimes less predictable over days and weeks than solar is. Um, but basically the, the intermittency of renewables is only one driver of variability. Variability can just can occur on the supply side from renewables, but it can also occur on the demand side. The problem is as we begin to electrify more and more end uses of energy, uh, demand patterns for electricity are going to change. So you mentioned heating, which was the focus of uh, one of our recent papers that I wrote with uh, my research colleagues, uh, Amy Chu, who's an assistant professor at Mills College, uh, Benjamin Perrin, who's a doctoral student here at Penn in the Department of Material Sciences, and uh, Girish Sankar, who's a, a master's of business administration at Wharton. So for example, in the Northeast, um, we use a colossal amount of energy to heat our homes and businesses in the winter. Uh, until recently, electrifying heating was far too expensive um, and very inefficient to really be a viable solution for everyone. Uh, but today, thanks to developments in um, technologies such as air source and, and also ground source heat pumps, it is now fairly economical to convert your home to electric heating. These systems, in fact, um, can be quite a lot more efficient than existing oil and gas heating systems that they're replacing. Um, and of course, these systems uh, sever the, the direct connection to the use of fossil fuels. However, just because electric heating has gotten more efficient and affordable doesn't mean that in aggregate, this shift would not have very profound impacts on demand patterns for electricity. Right now in the PJM footprint, which is the kind of area where we are now uh, in Philadelphia, for example, the yearly peak in electricity demand is very consistently in the summer months. Um, however, we modeled what it would look like if you electrified all heating in PJM, this is residential and commercial heating, um, using the latest and best air source heat pump technology. So these are very efficient systems, but still it significantly shifts the annual peak demand for electricity from summer to winter. Um, and unfortunately, this coincides with the period of lowest solar radiation and lowest capacity factor for solar power. So this is a real problem and it could create an even greater disconnect between when energy is produced and when it's required, um, thus amplifying the importance of storage. So, so if I can, so if I can summarize that, so it sounds like not only do we have this issue of as we have more renewables, we need to balance those renewables seasonally rather than daily, but also what you've just described here is that we are actually going to have more demand in those off seasons for particularly solar power production in the winter, which only amplifies, as you just said, the need to have some sort of storage to get us through those long, cold winter months when everybody potentially, for example, here in Philadelphia in the future is going to be using electricity to heat their homes. That's right. And, and just as the supply variability is going to depend on the, on the grid mix of generation, um, the demand variability is going to depend on, on, what, on what end uses we electrify. So we looked specifically at heating, um, but you could also look at 
what the seasonal impact of widespread electrification of, of automobiles would look like. Um, for example, vehicles mile, vehicle miles traveled uh, are somewhat higher in the summer than they are in the winter. So if that were to translate over to uh, electricity demand for electric vehicles, you could potentially see some of these, uh, these, these, this variation in seasonal demand to start to balance each other out. Um, but that would require much more sophisticated modeling than what we were able to do. It sounds like a lot of pieces will have to come together in the puzzle to make that happen too. For example, a, a vast uh, EV uh, network. Yeah. You know, I, I want to touch a little bit further on that report that you did uh, that that was involved Philadelphia Gas Works, um, and in that you researched the economics of storage under a scenario, as we just said, where home heating, for example, here in Philadelphia, uh, is actually electrified. Um, tell us about that study and what you found, and about the economics. Uh, uh, of of you know a, a low carbon grid and, and the way to balance that grid here here in the city. Yeah, we did look at the at the co at the costs of electrifying, um, and to be honest, it's really not pretty, right? I mean, once you factor in the duration of storage that would be needed to balance these monthly and seasonal variations, uh, achieving it using only, for example, lithium ion battery technology it becomes a real, real challenge. Um, and again, this is because what you would really want for this scenario would be a storage system where the ratio of power to energy capacity, remember we, we kind of outlined that, was much smaller than the typical battery system that you see today. So using the ratios of existing lithium ion battery technology, um, or existing lithium batteries in use today, you would need to deploy many times the power output uh, that you would ever need just in order to get the energy capacity needed to deal with these seasonal variations. So in an optimization model that we built, uh, actually for the whole PJM region, uh, we saw a consistent overbuilding of renewable capacity uh, before seasonal storage capacity was really ever considered. Uh, and this was true for lithium ion batteries. It was true for pumped hydro storage. And it was also true for reversible um, fuel cell systems using hydrogen as the storage medium. Uh, these were the three storages that we, th storage technologies that we looked at. Um, uh, in other words, the model opted to overbuild generation and accept the economic losses of curtailment before ever really relying upon storage to shift load from one month uh, to another. That's so, interesting. That's interesting because what you're essentially saying here is that the economics of seasonal storage really don't work if it if it is indeed uh, cheaper, essentially just to overbuild wind and solar to make sure that there's always enough, even when the wind isn't blowing very strong. Strongly. Yeah, they, they uh, I would say they don't work at the moment. Um, but again, you know, these are challenges that we're going to be facing um, a little ways down the road. Um, and depending, obviously, on the developments and further innovation in the storage space, uh, that could very well change. 
Uh, one of the big challenges with seasonal storage actually has nothing to do with the technology limitations um, of which, as I've outlined, there are, there are plenty. Um, it has to do with how storage is valued in the market. Uh, for example, uh, you could envision a very simple uh, variable price structure in which storage providers charge their systems when electricity is cheap, representing you know, a surplus of electricity available, um, and sell that stored electricity when prices are high, representing a period of high demand. Um, in that's you know the revenue generated by the storage provider in this setup uh, would be entirely derived from the profit made between the electricity price at charging and the electricity price at discharging. The problem with this system is that it basically incentivizes storage providers to charge and discharge their systems as frequently as possible and provides no compensation for the standby time uh, in which they're either uh, storing energy or are ready to, ready to receive surplus electricity. Uh, looking to the future, you know, if we need storage to help balance monthly and seasonal load variations, we're going to need a market structure that incentivizes storage providers to uh, effectively keep their systems on standby until they're really needed. So that's interesting. Uh, so if you're using, if you're cycling those batteries or whatever the type of storage may be uh, infrequently, um, mm -hmm. then there's really much less revenue is essentially what you're saying. So new, new market structures need to be come up with to, to, to accommodate that. Right, right. Because once you make the capital investment in a storage system, if you're trying to run it as a business, you're, you're want, you want to run it as often as, and as frequently as possible. Uh, and that's really not what we're going to need storage to do down the road. You know, there's an, another aspect that you brought up in the report that I thought was very interesting, which doesn't get a whole lot of discussion, and that's the issue of land use. You looked at the land use requirements for these different types of storage, and some of them were pretty dramatic, uh, and that also factored in, I believe, into, into the decisions or the conclusions that you made in the report. But, but tell us about those, those land use considerations. So land use is a, a really tricky one. Um, <laughs> on the one hand, you know, the U.S. is a very large country with few constraints on available land. Um, and at least compared to, um, for example, you know, many European countries, there's, not, there's really not much land constraint in the U.S. Um, and even in Europe, you know, there is technically plenty of land available to support the necessary renewable energy generation uh, that will be needed. But that said, it's really not that simple. Land rights, land ownership, um, community resistance, uh, and also concerns over preserving ecosystems and, and uh, productive agricultural land uh, mean that citing new renewable generation, it's gonna, it's gonna be far from straightforward, um, especially once you consider the gigawatts and gigawatts that will be demanded by a fully renewable electrified energy system. So in our model, we did calculate the land use of the various scenarios um, using each of the three storage technologies that we looked at, but we didn't assign a cost to this land use. So the optimization model 
calculated land use, but it did not use that land use um, to give recommendations. I, I think if we had included a cost for land use, we may not have seen as much over deployment of generation as we did. Hmm. Um, this is because you know solar panels and especially wind power take up a lot of space. And in some runs of the model, uh, it was deploying enough solar and wind power to cover Virginia. <laughs> that's dramatic and that's when, gotta be expensive. Right, and this is because it was over, it was over deploying generation mm -hmm. um, to avoid having to deploy storage. So when it comes to a comparison of the actual storage technologies, um, lithium ion and reversible fuel cells, they do take up significantly less space than the current prevailing grid solution, which would be uh, pumped hydro systems. Uh, and they're much less dependent on local geography. But compared to the land use demanded by the generation, uh, really all three storage technologies represent um, a comparative reduction in land use. So the more value you place on land use, the more that will favor deployment of storage. So let's kind of cut to the chase here. We, we've talked some about the, the challenges to, to storage, particularly for, for uh, seasonal purposes, uh, some of the land use considerations. Given all of this uh, and the cost considerations again, what role should we realistically be casting for storage overall within our electricity system, again, as we as we uh, reduce the, the, the carbon intensity of the system? Yeah, so I don't mean to avoid this question, but I think it's going to depend so much on the technology developments and cost curves uh, of storage over the next decade or so. Um, like I said a couple times now, many of the challenges uh, with storage that we've been discussing, they really only become a major consideration once a large majority of the electricity um, of electricity is being produced by solar and wind power. Um, and once our energy system has also become significantly more electrified. Uh, so it's kind of hard to say exactly what the future limitations of storage will be uh, once these kinds of seasonal load balancing services reach their height of importance, uh, just because the technologies could have improved significantly by that point. I mean, if storage technologies um, continue to improve at the rate that they have been doing so over the last couple of decades, then it's still very possible that they could offer something approaching a fossil fuel level uh, of flexibility when we, you know, when we need it and, and for a fully electrified economy. The technology is not there right now, um, but it very well could be in the future. Uh, and in general, I would strongly caution anyone from betting against electrification. Uh, the, the world has really slowly been electrifying since the days of Edison, and storage technologies are just allowing this process to extend far beyond what was possible just even a few short decades ago. So let's say for a moment that the costs uh, continue to be a big problem. Uh, what other options should we be looking at for cost-effective, low-carbon balancing of a future grid uh, again, that has a high penetration of renewable energy. Yeah, so I, in, in the event that some or all of the existing limitations of 
of storage cannot be overcome in time. Um, we probably do need to really consider the role of hydrogen and of renewable fuels uh, that can act as basically flexible substitutes for existing fossil fuel demands. Um, even if this is you know, a, a, a much less technologically mature solution. You know, electrify everything as a concept is very elegant in its simplicity. And of course, a large amount of electrification is absolutely going to be necessary, like I, like I just said, but we shouldn't discount the challenges that come with it. Um, it's not just about the end use practicality or, or economics of electrification. It's really about the impact that that additional load uh, would have on peak demand and on the overall variability of demand uh, and what that means for balancing a future grid. We're likely going to need hydrogen or some form of renewable fuel um, for things like aviation, uh, long distance aviation, certainly some types of industry. Um, so it may be a good opportunity to also consider what role those technologies could play for things like residential heating. Then of course, natural gas peaking plants coupled with carbon capture uh, and sequestration, they could be a backup method for sustainably dealing with these seasonal peaks in, in demand uh, if storage or, or renewable fuels don't pan out. But we're gonna, we're gonna have enough carbon capture to deal with as it is uh, just to stabilize the climate from the emissions that we've already produced and will be producing. Um, we really need to avoid, I think, relying upon it wherever possible. Um, well, it's interesting that you bring that up because natural gas really is the default right now, right? And, and right. Um, it, it really is the balancing solution. As you point out, you have to have some way to clean that up within the context of a, of a low carbon grid, right. carbon capture and storage being the most obvious, but that's not cheap either, right? And you have to have access to geologic storage, which means either you've got those gas peakers close to the storage or you've got a long pipeline to take the gas carbon dioxide from those peakers to the to the you know the geologic storage location so right all of these and also, solutions are challenging right yeah and also you know peakers uh they're gonna with in the kind of scenario we're talking about they're gonna face uh many of the same challenges from seasonal variation that face storage solutions right in terms um, of economics in the terms of economics right because it's going to be tough for any operation storage or peakers to survive when they really may only be needed for a month out of the year. Um, that's not a good business model for anyone, really. You know, I wanted to, to bring up one of the points and just kind of emphasize something here about storage. So we've talked about the limitations of storage, again, for seasonal purposes. But despite those seasonal challenges, storage, again, really does hold huge potential in cases where shorter duration is just fine. Uh, and tying in gas and storage all together. Some recent reports uh, have come out that show that uh, storage is becoming cost competitive with natural gas generators and balancing the daily intermittency of solar output and also the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the FERC, which regulates wholesale electricity markets, obviously recognizes the value of storage because it has implemented new market rules 
to accelerate the growth of storage, again, in electricity markets. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, 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 you know, we are very quickly approaching, I think, a point where daily intermittency from renewables um, really becomes much less of an issue. I think already, you know, in places like California, where there's, they, they're already facing these challenges, um, you know, with careful demand side management, um, aggregation, making sure that there's a diverse renewable generation mix, um, and, you know, using the smart deployment of short duration storage. Uh, I am fairly confident that we can effectively move, um, we can effectively deal with the daily intermittency of renewables. Um, it's really the seasonal variation that I see as more of a long-term challenge. And, and Order 841, uh, it's an essential step in that direction, right? Uh, part of the challenge for large-scale deployment of grid storage, uh, as I said, is the market structures that are in place. We really need to make sure that uh, the market accurately values the service that storage providers uh, are providing, and, 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 and that includes the standby value that storage systems offer, uh, even when they're not actively charging or discharging. So let me ask you a final question here and just kind of sum up. So we've obviously got a, a, a big challenge ahead, right? We're headed for an electric system that will be cleaner, larger, and an even more essential part of our lives if we're talking about everything being electrified. At the same time, we'll need to balance this intermittency uh, of these resources. So, so what policy solutions, uh, additional policy solutions might there be to address the challenges presented uh, by a low carbon grid? Yeah, so I think uh, developing robust and fair market incentives for storage providers is going to be so important if we're going to build out storage capacity uh, to a point where it can really provide uh, grid-wide load balancing. I also think that it's important to acknowledge that more and more individuals are becoming effectively small-scale storage providers through uh, the setup of home backup systems, the purchase of electric vehicles. There are, you know, there are more and more batteries entering the system um, and finding you know, policy, market, and technology solutions to effectively aggregate all of those storage systems while also compensating owners uh, is going to be a real challenge, but a very important one to solve. And lastly, I would just stress that we shouldn't forget how far we still have to go before these storage technologies can support renewable generation to the point where uh, we can have a renewable electrified energy system uh, that can function with the kind of flexibility that we've really come to take for granted today uh, from fossil fuels. Uh, you know, a, a 70, 80% renewable grid, <clears throat> excuse me, it might not seem anywhere close. It might seem like a lifetime away, but it really isn't. And we'll be there before we know it. And we need to make sure that, you know, storage solutions or if necessary, renewable fuel solutions are ready to support that future grid. Um, and this needs to be a major focus of policy innovation moving forward. Oscar, thanks very much for talking. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Today's guest has been Oscar Serpel, Research Associate with the Climate Center for Energy Policy. 
Today's episode will be the last before we take a short break for the holiday season. But of course, we'll be back in January with a new year of episodes covering the world of energy policy. In the meantime, check out our archive of episodes on the newly redesigned Climate Center website. Or to get all the latest from the Climate Center, including research, blogs, and events, sign up for our monthly newsletter again on our webpage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 